I think we have a very, uh, there's at least one strain in the in the Catholic Church, very, very, uh, you f- it's kind of prosperity gospel. You follow the rules, you pray, and God does what you want. It's a, it's a, absolutely, to me, um, that particular strain of thought is just completely theologically in error. I mean, we're promised tribulation and persecution and um, and and the fullness of joy. But the purpose of prayer is not to sway God. I mean, what kind of God? That, would, that wouldn't be God. It's to change us, to open us to reality. And, and I think Therese absolutely got that. You're listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Welcome to the program. I'm Michael John Cusick, and this is Season 2, Episode 15, the second part of a two-part conversation with Heather King, writer, speaker, retreat leader, and former commentator on NPR's All Things Considered. Her books include Parched, a Memoir, Redeemed, and A Shirt of Flame, A Year with St. Therese of Lisieux. In part two of my conversation with Heather King, we discuss her book, Shirt of Flame, including how Therese was a saint for our generation precisely because she was so neurotic, an idea which might inspire hope for those of us wondering if the messiness and dysfunction of our own lives disqualifies us from our own saintly calling. So join me now for the conclusion of my conversation with Heather King. I'd like to transition to talking about your book, Shirt of Flame, uh, which was fascinating to me. You pronounce it, I think, Therese, and I've always said Therese of Lisieux, but it's a book, Shirt of Flame, A Year with St. Therese of Lisieux. And uh, the only thing I knew about her before I I read this book was uh, the quote from years ago that I heard, that our poverty is our capacity for God. And that's a huge theme throughout the book is spiritual poverty. So talk to me about what led to writing a book on a year with St. Therese. Well, the real impetus behind that book was that I was approached by Paraclete Press, who published it, and they were looking for someone who to write a book about uh, the spirituality of a saint of their choosing. Um, not, a, not a sort of biography or hagiography, ha- but a book about living with the spirituality of whoever. And they said, you can pick whoever you want. And um, I'm always up for a project and always up for making any kind of money. So I I thought about it. And um, and St. Therese of Lisieux was the one who almost instantly came up, which was kind of interesting because we're a very, very odd couple. I mean, Therese as people may know, uh, was a kind of French bourgeois, lived from 1874 to 1897, I think. She died at the age of 24, very young, lived in an austere, cloistered convent with a lot of kind of neurotic nuns for most of her, for all her adult life, Um, died of TB at 24, lifelong virgin, um, I mean, just had very, very pious family. And um, yeah, I'd had a very different kind of life. But her spirituality 
captivated me. I mean, the sort of the romance, in a sense, of her story, this young, young girl who gives herself to God is so sure of her vocation and never wavered for a second, even though much of her life was aridity and deep interior suffering. So I thought, I want to explore her. And I was living in Koreatown at the time, Koreatown neighborhood of L.A., which is just absolutely crazy, colorful, dangerous, urban, urban, very densely populated, many different, um, I mean, whites were a way minority. And uh, and there I was in the midst of this trudging to mass. And um, so that's how the book came about. And in, in many ways, um, I don't know that you said this, you might have been quoting someone else in the book, but that that, and I'll use your pronunciation, Therese is uh, a saint for our generation. Why is that? Well, for one thing, she was neurotic. So I think that's, that alone. <laughs> there, there we go. That, that's our generation. That's me. <laughs> exactly. And I, she, had, she had some incidents. Her mother died. She had a huge abandonment wound. This is another reason I very much identified with her. Her mother died, although my mother didn't. I had an abandonment wound anyway. But her mother died when she was four and a half. And then her older sisters, she came from a family of five sisters, all of whom eventually entered a cloistered convent. She was the youngest. So she first her mother died. Then she watched her sisters, her surrogate mothers, one by one, go off to the convent. So she had a deep abandonment wound, and she had a couple of incidents in her youth where she kind of had some kind of mental, spiritual collapse. One of them, she she would kind of shake uncontrollably and sort of have fits, and um, no one to this day knows, but she smiles, the Virgin, the statue of the Virgin Mary smiled at her, quote-unquote, one day, and she was cured. Um, but she... I've been very much formed in my understanding of the spirituality of Therese by uh, a few, a couple of books by wonderful writer, Brother Joseph Schmidt. He's with the Christian Brothers. And his whole idea of Therese's spirituality is that it was a journey through what we would call codependence. Um, and this I totally identify with. Sort of uh, some of us have this tendency to over bond over you know you fall deeply crazily in love and the object of your affection becomes a kind of idol and uh and it's a and it's another form of kind of obsessive compulsive behavior and she t- absolutely had that tendency she recognized it in herself that she would even with her little playmates th- they would mean much more to her she realized than she meant to them. And, uh, you know, if you start hanging around bars and doing the thing you do in bars, that that gets you in a lot of trouble. Um, that kind of longing, over-longing. Uh, so. so not only was she neurotic, but in many ways um, different from an alcoholic, but she struggled with obsession. Yes, and she says at one point, if I had been... I'm paraphrasing, but something about if I had gone the way of Mary Magdalene. In other words, if I had, I took it to mean if I had ever, uh, you know, found guys or slept with a guy or what, I mean, I just would have been gone. Um, So she realized she often spoke about how God had saved her. Uh, you know, the, the the father who sees that you're about to trip over a stone and gently removes it before you can 
before you do trip over it. And but and she was very clear the fact that she had never committed a mortal sin, the fact that she was a lifelong virgin did not make her one whit more virtuous than anyone else. It was it was rather that um, she had been certain temptations had not been put in her path. So she had the neurotic. Uh, and then she suffered, she kind of had an attachment to her mother superior. You know how when you just want so much for someone to look at you and get you and understand you and give you a little crumb of attention. And those are all very human longings. But when we want one person too much to give that stuff to us, and either they're not able to give it or they're just not meant to, um, that that is uh, can be, as we all know, a really uh, huge point of suffering. Um, so she she worked through all that in the convent. The beautiful thing about what you're describing with her is that she wasn't this ultimately virtuous person who was without struggles or brokenness. But it was in the midst of her relationship with God that she worked out this brokenness. And as Richard Rohr would say, she had a hole in her soul that she was taking to these other relationships and these other things to kind of fill that. But it was in the midst of that that she developed this, what she called the little way. Yes. And, and another thing I love about her is that um, she's another reason she's an example for our for our times, which let's face it, we do not live. I mean, we live in a virulently anti-God culture, anti-religion culture, um, and so so our lives with Christ are sort of necessarily um, hidden. Um, I mean, I don't. I'm very much against this idea of oh, we need to segregate ourselves and live in some separate, rarefied Christian community where we're not tainted by the culture. Christ didn't do that. He was in the midst of also a very broken, violent, corrupt, religiously corrupt culture. Um, But the point is, we all live in our little cloister. And Therese, in, in the context of this remote, completely unknown cloister, somehow got no, this I can work out the kingdom of God here with these not with the, just the people around me, which is what we're all called to do. And she gives these very specific examples that are familiar to any human being. Um, okay, one of them was she had this crotchety old nun, uh, and she took it upon herself, Therese, to accompany this nun to the refectory uh, every night to eat, and the nun would complain, complain, whine. Um, Oh, you're holding me too tight. Let go. Oh, you're not holding me tight enough. And Therese said she just, she just learned to treat her like Christ and she would cut up her food for her. And in other words, she responded with non violence. I think we're so, uh, again, by virtue of our, just our fallenness and our culture, our response to so much is aggression. Give me my rights. I need this. I want that. I demand this. I'm entitled. And the way of Christ is, it's not to be a doormat. It's not to say it's okay to abuse me, but it's to come up with a a way of creative nonviolence. That's really what love is. And it's love under battlefield conditions. It's unbelievably difficult to do in real life, as we all know. Um, 
There's another example of the nun behind Therese and choir made this horribly annoying clicking noise. She was maybe clicking her rosary against her teeth or clicking her dentures or something. And I mean, you're in those, you're assigned to those spaces for life. So she has this woman behind her probably six or seven times a day there and they're in the chapel praying. And, um, and she taught, and she also had a huge sense of humor, which I love about Therese. And she said she literally worked, would sweat fighting the urge to turn around and glare at the woman because what good is glaring going to do? It's an act. It's really an act of aggression. Um, it's basically saying you're substandard and I just want you to know it. Um, so she trained herself to imagine that that sound was music and the, the ears of the little Christ child or some, something like that. But she's so not she's not pious. She she doesn't stint on how incredibly difficult this stuff is. But those were her triumphs. And I think um, they're definitely my triumphs, too, if I have any triumph at all. It's always okay, can I just refrain from having to have the last word, from having to set you straight, from having to win the argument? Um, I see how that positions me so to, so much to so much better be able to receive the, the beauty and joy of the world. Those are those small mortifications of the ego, which is really what Christ meant by dying to self. Uh, tell me more about what Therese meant by the little way. Well, to me, she meant, she meant not so much that, that little things, we do little things for God, although that is true as well. Um, she's a wonderful line, to pick up a pen for love can convert a soul. Um, but to me, it's rather that we do everything with love and the and the little way to me is this way that is it's a little because it does consist of very small things they're not oh i'm going to go to uh africa and create a oxfam that's going to save millions of people from starving i mean that's incredibly beautiful that's not something given my temperament and talents, I'm capable of. So um, to me, and I think many of us, is given this smaller hidden way of just going through our day. She said our vocation is love. And the corollary to that, which is maybe the most difficult thing, is that you don't get recognized for it. It's a little because it's completely unseen. No one knows what it costs you to keep your mouth shut and not not retort with a sarcastic reply. No one sees when you don't make the rude retort. No one notices when you refrain from setting them straight because it's a it's a kind of beautiful negative. It's something that doesn't a kind of active aggression that doesn't occur and you know that mystically that's that's a huge act of peacekeeping um of bringing peace and love to the world but no one around you knows that and so um i'll give you an example this is one of my favorite one time this was several years ago um i had a friend who was uh in she comes from europe and she was over there and 
a mutual friend of ours, uh, mother had died. And this, this mutual friend was way closer to my friend who was in Europe than to me. But so, so my friend from Europe wanted me, she said, can you go to her mother's funeral? Now, the funeral was in San Diego, which is a three-hour gnarly drive from Los Angeles. Um, it was at a trailer park where the mother had lived. I was exhausted. I had deadlines. I was besieged on every side. I, I think I was as probably undergoing some horrible existential torment as usual. But I said yes, and I drove down, and I went, and I was present, and I was kind to the the mutual friend and the and the deceased mother's friends, and hung out and had the bad food, and on and on. And I was preparing to take the horrible three hour drive home, and and the woman whose mother had died looked at me and said, "You know, you're really you're really a pretty good egg. What I don't get is." How can you be Catholic? <laughs> and I just howled with laughter inside because I just so wanted to say, oh, girl, you have no idea how much I would rather be sitting at some cheap bar drinking sea breezes and picking up some strange guy, you know, and I just kind of smiled and said, oh, well, if you're ever really curious, I'll tell you about my journey. But that's the thing. You you open your veins and, and at the end of it, people ridicule your the very faith that makes it possible for you to remotely be there. And um, and Christ said, that's exactly what to expect. And don't be a bit surprised. Um, but that's that's a little that's the little way. And it is absolutely formed me as a human being and as a follower of Christ. And if I'm not mistaken, that that season in history was almost like the little way would have been uh, in contrast to a lot of the extreme piety and even self-flagellation and things like that. So for her to have chosen the little way would have been kind of a radical idea in the Catholic Church at that time. Absolutely. And that was another thing. Yes, because the church at that time was marked by um, apparent, this movement apparently called Jansenism, um, very much based on keeping score. You put, have a little notebook and you write your sins down and you write your good deeds down and, da, 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 and count. And uh, Therese has another great line. There is one science of which God knows nothing. Arithmetic. <laughs> So, yes. Wow. So wow. she she got she totally got this is not the Christ of the Gospels, and she got it in her heart and her soul without having to set anyone straight, without having to set herself up as the superior one, as the arbiter of the Gospels, as the person who had found the true heart of Christ and let me bestow it on you. She simply, quietly lived it out with, again, no recognition, no real peer, um, no, she had no real confessor. I think she, she said Jesus was my confessor. And that can sound very uh, sort of, whoa, she's gone off the rails and she thinks she's above. But um, I don't think so. I think she 
she got that she had somehow penetrated to the heart of the Gospels, and um, and I'm sure she was took kept very close guard. I mean, talk about an ongoing examination of conscience. Um, so, uh, but yes, you're exactly right. It was very much against against the prevailing sort of spirituality of the church of the day. And that's as true today, I think. Um, I think we have a very, uh, there's at least one strain in the, in the Catholic Church, very, very, uh, you f- it's kind of prosperity gospel. You follow the rules, you pray, and God does what you want. It's, a, it's a, absolutely, to me, um, that particular strain of thought is just completely theologically in error. I mean, we're promised tribulation and persecution and poverty um, and and the fullness of joy. But there's nothing about the Gospels that says if you pray, the purpose of prayer is not to sway God. I mean, what kind of God? That, w- that wouldn't be God. It's to change us, to open us to reality. And, and I think Therese absolutely got that. What are some of your own spiritual rhythms that facilitate your spiritual growth? Do you consider yourself a contemplative? Well, I think contemplative is a kind of rarefied term. And um, I think probably true contemplatives. uh, I mean, I know certain people who've kind of consecrated hermits. They have a kind of title. They may... uh, But I don't have any of that. And I'm not really... For me, the, the best way is to be as anonymous as possible, partly because I'm such a, a judgmental attention <laughs> junkie. Um, if you compliment me, I go completely. Yeah, I mean, I'm so I so do better just be blending in. Um, however, given that I live, I live alone, I work alone, I'm unmarried, I'm childless. Uh, I also live in the middle of the city. But yeah, my life, like, for instance, yesterday, was I love days like this. I call them days when you don't have to cope, a, a day when I didn't have to negotiate a contract, argue with AT&T about my bill, go to the dentist, have my oil change. And I could just work and work in the garden. I took a walk. I went to the chapel at St. Elizabeth of Hungary. And I didn't, left to my own devices, I love a day or two when I don't have to talk to anyone. Um, I begin my day with prayer. I pray the, the divine office every morning. Um, I read that day's gospel. I mean, I, my day is very much centered around that's really the most important hour of my day. Um, I'll often go to daily mass. Uh, I can go in the morning. There's a noon mass. I can go at six if I want. Um, I try to say evening prayer you know, a little examination of conscience, a a prayer of gratitude. And then throughout the day, constantly uh, just kind of in conversation with God. Oh, look at the look at the house finches that have come to the bird feeder. Oh, look, the bougainvillea is blooming. Um, You know, this kind of um, I think gratitude is so much the heart of of, uh, any any true spirituality. I, you know, I was just thinking before you and I talked, this wonderful line, Flannery, and I have lots of spiritual guides, and one of them is Flannery O'Connor, uh, you know, whose name I can barely say without, without weeping. You know, there's not, there's not that many women in the church who have sort of foregone 
marriage and children or or those things just didn't pan out because that wasn't our vocation and who have devoted themselves absolutely to writing. And Flannery O'Connor is one of them. Uh, Carol Houselander is one of them. Uh, Dorothy Day um, is really one of them. I mean, for her, she, of course, was very active as well, but her writing to her, I think, was kind of the heart of her vocation, and, and it's beautiful. And it's, uh, But anyway, Flannery O'Connor has this wonderful line. She says, the Catholic writer, insofar as he has the mind of the church, will feel life from the standpoint of the central Christian mystery, that it has, for all its horror, been found by God to be worth dying for. Um, and I think that's the standpoint. It's interesting that she says, we'll feel life. Um, and that's, that's the heart of a contemplative. It's feeling life. Um, so that's the deal. It's, uh, as Mother Teresa said, um, joyful participation in the sorrows of the world. Oh, that's wonderful. You're quoting all these different people in all these different books, and it, it makes me want to uh, go online and order them all from Amazon. Um, Heather, I want to end with this quote because I, I laughed out loud when I read this, and I think in some ways it's a great summary of, of what we've been talking about, This um, and, that, and that you weave this truth throughout all of your books. You said that you were talking with a, a sober priest friend, and wanting to know about whether you were making spiritual progress and wondered if it was about praying more or, you know, being more pious. And he pondered for a moment and he said, if crazy people aren't afraid to come and talk to you, that's a pretty good sign. <laughs> and uh, what what did you do with that line when he said oh, that? Oh, we both just cracked up laughing because it's such it's such wonderful advice. In other words... Um, don't take yourself too seriously. I mean, the very fact that you're looking for signs of spiritual progress is not pr that great of a sign. <laughs> it's like your, your progress, if there is any, will probably be totally invisible to you. And just go about your day, do the next indicated thing, have a sense of humor, wear life like a loose garment. And, um, and I think if it, the more sort of vulnerable we are the less seriously, even though the stakes are life and death, but still we can't take ourselves and, and our path that seriously because we stumble so often. You have to laugh at yourself. It's, but I like this idea and I've often found it to be true. Like crazy people are not afraid, trust me, to come up and talk to me. So um they weren't afraid to come up and talk to Christ, that's for sure. So um, that's it. That's that's our job, to be there, because we're all crazy in our ways. And so um, that's really our job, to be there for each other, the Christ in one another. Well, Heather King, I'm so, so thankful to be able to talk with you. And I'm looking forward to sharing with our listeners about your various books. And thanks for being a blessing today. Thank you so much, Michael. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. Learn more about how we cultivate freedom and wholeness of heart at RestoringTheSoul.com.
You already know we live in a pornified world, but most of us are at a loss for how to navigate this sea of temptation. It's either ceaseless striving on the one hand or giving in to brokenness on the other. But doesn't the gospel offer us another way? The truth is that our sexual struggles are not actually about sex, but about a misdirected, God-given longing for deep connection. Dig deeper in my book, Surfing for God, Discovering the Divine Desire Beneath Sexual Struggle. 